Welcome to the RCAF USA Roundup. I'm Shad Sullivan. And I'm Jaden Moreland, and we're here to talk all things cattle, sheep, and American exceptionalism. We stand for liberty and freedom. And we are having real and honest conversations about issues that affect your family, your ranch, your community, and most of all, your legacy. So let's jump right in. These days, mandatory animal ID and property rights have been in the hot seat, so let's talk about their connections to global warming, climate hysteria, and control. Wyoming U.S. Representative Harriet Hageman sat down with us to discuss the government overreach of these issues and how to rediscover the American fighting spirit to defend our livestock industries and our way of life. This episode is sponsored by Risk Associates. With generations of combined agricultural experience, let them protect what's yours with unmatched coverage options. Visit their website, riskassociatesinc.net. Thank you, Risk Associates, for being a 2023 convention sponsor, and thank you for your support of RCAP USA. Well, we have a very special guest with us today, the U.S. Representative from Wyoming, Congresswoman Harriet Hageman. We are so excited to have you on the show with us today, and while much of our calf is very familiar with you and your work. We, why don't we just start with a quick introduction for those listeners who aren't as familiar with you and your story and just your history with the industry. Wonderful, Jaden. Thank you for having me today. I always enjoy visiting with folks from RCAP. Uh, I grew up on a ranch outside of Fort Laramie, Wyoming, and the ranch is still in the family. I'm a fourth generation Wyomingite, and we're now on our sixth generation. So I have I come from a very large family, mostly ag-based, small business owners, that sort of thing. Uh, a lot of family members went into education. I'm an attorney. I graduated from Lingo Fort Laramie High School, and then I went to Casper College on a livestock judging scholarship. From there, I went to the University of Wyoming, received both my bachelor's degree and my law degree. I practiced law for well over 30 years, and then in 2021, I made the decision to run for Congress challenging Liz Cheney uh, to represent Wyoming. And so that's what I'm doing now. I was fortunate to be elected. I'm very honored to represent Wyoming. And we've been dealing with a lot of extremely important issues over the last year. Uh, I'm back in Wyoming right now. I just had a town hall last night in Natrona County, had one earlier this week in Cheyenne for Laramie County, uh, traveling the state, meeting with leaders, you know, community leaders and and small businesses and that sort of thing and making sure that their voice is heard in in Washington, D.C. Well, you're doing a great job and we'll kind of expand on some of your history with RCAF later on. But one of my favorite moments of our relationship with you is when you won that primary election in 2022, you spoke at our convention in Deadwood the day after. And (laughs) as soon as we introduced you, I just remember the room like erupted in like a standing (laughs) ovation and everyone was so excited to see you and supportive of you. And that's kind of how we still feel. And that's how we feel to have you fighting for us now on the legislative level. Um, And so I think that you kind of give us all a little bit of hope. um, Thank you. Fight for our industry and our freedoms and liberties in general. Um, So that being said, talk to us a little bit about that jump from what made you you know, decide to go on this journey to become a congresswoman, you know, it's kind of a large job, especially in today's world. Um, So kind of talk to us about that journey and, you know, what your biggest takeaways are. Well, I I think it's, it's fairly simple. I've been pretty active in politics in Wyoming for quite some time. In fact, I was raised in it. My dad was a state legislator for many, many years, 24 years. He was the chairman of the Ag Committee and chairman of the Education Committee at different times. 
So politics is kind of in my blood. But what really, there was a, a couple of things that were the impetus behind it. We all know what happened with Liz Cheney starting in 2021. And what I realized is that Wyoming did not have a voice in Congress. She was so focused on something that was largely irrelevant to most of us that it, we weren't being heard. And Wyoming only has one congressional member. So if your congressional member is distracted and not addressing the issues that are important to your state, you're essentially hung out to dry. And that's what happened in Wyoming. So I made the decision that I wanted to represent Wyoming. And as I often said, I'm not, I wasn't running against Liz Cheney. I was running for Wyoming. And I think that that has been borne out with the work that I've done over the last year. I have really focused on Wyoming issues, protecting our ag industry, protecting our mining industry, protecting our other legacy industries, oil and gas, uranium, um, small businesses, all of the, bills, the, the small businesses associated with our energy development. I have been a huge advocate for who and what Wyoming is. And as I say, Wyoming is one of the largest energy producers in the nation. And I thank the people in Wyoming for making people's lives better. When we produce energy, people in this country are more prosperous. They're better off. They have better health outcomes. All of those things are related. Uh, you know, and, and, and food freedom and food security is also a huge part of that. I'm an enormous advocate for our ag producers. I do not want to become food dependent on foreign nations. Yet I see the current administration and, and, and the radical Democrats leading us down that road. So almost every single day that I wake up, I'm advocating for something that has to do with Wyoming. And when I do that for Wyoming, it benefits other states as well. When I advocate for the, the ag industry in Wyoming, it's going to benefit those in South Dakota and Nebraska and Texas and Kansas and Utah and Oklahoma, all of those places. So I've really become quite a strong voice. Um, and then I'm on the Natural Resource Committee, which gives me even perhaps a, a larger megaphone to make sure that people understand what our producers do, what we do in Wyoming, and why it's so important to make sure that we protect those legacy industries. Yeah, and you're doing a great job of that. Um, very great job of that. And one of those issues, specifically an ag issue, is something RCAF has been fighting for a very long time for, and that is mandatory country of origin labeling. And you made us all very excited when you introduced the Country of Origin Labeling Enforcement Act of 2023. So if you would tell us a little bit about that bill and what it would do if passed. So th the reality is, is that the American public wants to eat American beef. They want American produced food. So why we're importing massive amounts of food, whether it be fresh produce or uh, our beef or, or lamb or pork doesn't make any sense. And so all this is, is really a transparency bill. If you are not, if you're bringing in either live or, or uh, meat, either live livestock or meat from other countries, when that goes on our grocery doors, gro grocery shelves, it should not say made in the USA. So all my bill does, it's very simple. All it does is say that unless that steak or that hamburger during its entire life cycle comes from America, it cannot say made in the USA. And there are pretty hefty fines associated with it. And what we want to do is if people want to buy beef from Paraguay, have at it. People want to buy beef from China, have at it. People want to buy uh, beef from, from Brazil, have at it. But if they want to buy American beef, they ought to know what American, which, which section has the American beef in it. We think that this is an important marketing tool for our producers. And the other thing to keep in mind is American beef 
is the safest, highest quality product in the world. And people have the right to know. We know where our clothes come from. I can look at the label on my on my dress and I can see where it was made. We know where our shoes come from. We know where all other kinds of products come from. But for some odd reason, they have fought us tooth and nail on this idea of labeling where beef comes comes from. And so the MCOOL bill is a transparency bill and it's a consumer protection bill. It's actually bipartisan. I have Democrats in support of this because they recognize that it is a food freedom issue and it is a, a consumer protection issue. And I let me jump in, Jaden. I think that's a really great point to uh, point out, Congressman, a Congresswoman, is that this is a liberty issue. Um, we owe it to our consumer to provide them the freedom of choice. And without that freedom of choice, they don't they don't know what they're buying in the store. And, uh, you know, it it's an oxymoron to me for us to be shipping uh, American beef across the, the pond to other countries and label it over there. But we don't want it labeled here. It just blows my mind. But it is truly a liberty and freedom issue. And we need to we need to honor our our consumer in a greater way by providing them that freedom. It's a benefit to the consumer and the producer both. And the fact is, I am an America first politician. I believe in America first. I believe that if you represent Great Britain, you ought to be Great Britain first. And if you represent China, you ought to be China first. But if you're in America, you ought to be America first. And so anything that I can do that will help our producers, help our consumers. And also, I want to bring the best, highest quality product we can. I know how our beef is produced in this country. I know the standards that we meet. I know that we have uniformity in terms of our grading and those sorts of things. You don't have that in other countries. And in other countries, uh, they have more disease outbreaks. We don't in this country. It's very rare. If you do see some kind of a foodborne illness issue, it's on the meat side of it, not on the cattle side of it. Right. I think people need to understand that, that it, it may be in the processing, but it's not typically in the production side of it. It's not in the raising side of it. We have very high quality ranchers. We have good quality, uh, a good quality product. And I want people to know where their beef comes from. It's really refreshing to talk to somebody that has a stake in the game here legislatively. This is awesome. Thank yeah. you. Um, so I guess then that brings us to a question that a lot of people have is Farmville Talks. You know, that's been ongoing for a year now. Um, so do you think that MCOOL will be included in the Farm Bill? So the Farm Bill is a difficult <laughs> issue. And right now, the farm bill has basically, we have kicked that can down the road. I didn't want to. I'd like to actually confront some of the more difficult and challenging issues that we have in Congress, because sometimes there are not many of us who are screaming that as loud as we can. Um, I, I don't know if we will get a farm bill. Right now, what has happened is the farm bill that was in place before is going to remain in place throughout much of this year as they continue to negotiate. So I, I don't know that we will see a new farm bill this year. We might buy, you know, towards closer towards the end of the summer, maybe, or this fall. Right now, that has not been the focus. And so all of the programs that previ previously existed are continuing. Um, we basically did a, a continuing resolution for the farm bill, uh, for the farm mm -hmm. bill itself, as we fight out the other appropriations bills. So um, I'm going to continue to push for MCOOL and, and to try to block RFID mandates, those sorts of things, but I don't know that they will be attached to the farm bill. 
Gotcha. And I guess, well, speaking of RFID, that brings us in the direction of that topic. Um, and I don't know if everybody knows, but long before you were the Wyoming U.S. representative, you were actually our attorney on our RFID lawsuit. So let's go to last January, USDA once again proposed a rule mandating that all cattle and bison producers begin using electronic identification device ear tags. So talk to us about the battle against mandatory RFID slash EID um, and the constitutionality of it and the government overreach. Why are they so adamant on implementing this system? So this all started in about 2011. You have to go back through the history. And way many, many years ago, the APHIS and USDA came up with this idea of doing uh, trying to convince the, the industry to adopt mandatory radio frequency identification ear tags. And the way that they've always sold this and pushed forward on this is the idea that it will make for safer, for safer meat, that we will be able to trace, it will be able to do disease traceability much more quickly and on and on and on. So they started this process in 2011 and the industry was not just, they just absolutely pushed back with everything they had and they weren't gonna have it. They just, it's absolutely astronomically costly. It's not feasible in so many areas where we raise our livestock. It is unnecessary. It's another surveillance program out of the federal government. There are all kinds of reasons as to why the cattle and bison industries pushed back against the idea of mandatory RFID. So in 2013, there was a rule issued about identification and traceability. And in that rule, it specifically uh, provided for being able to use our traditional forms of identification and traceability, brands, back tags, tattoos, ear tags, RFID ear tags, if you wanted to use them. But the 2013 rule, there's a couple things that came out of that. One, the USDA estimated that if there were a full mandatory RFID, it would cost our industry over $2 billion. That was in 2013. The other thing that they said is that the industry is opposed to the mandatory aspect of this. So it can be voluntary, but it doesn't have to be mandatory. So then fast forward to 2019, and I received a phone call from a rancher in Northeastern Wyoming, Tracy Hunt. And he said, and I was working for a nonprofit civil rights law firm at the time. And he called and he said, Harriet, there's this really strange document that showed up on the APHIS USDA website. It's a two-page document that says by January 1, 2023, we're required to have, start using RFID ear text. Would you look into this? And I looked into it. It's what's called a guidance document. They never even notified the producers. It violated the 2013 regulation. It has all kinds of property rights issues uh, that are problems. You have to, you would have to have a premises identification number and register with the federal government. And, uh, you, you know, like I said, there's a $2 billion price tag for the industry and all of these things. So looked into it and the USDA and APHIS don't have the legal authority to impose an RFID mandate. And especially if they're not going to go through the rulemaking process. I mean, you can't just slap a document up on a website and say, hey, everybody, we're going to start charging you massive amounts of money and we're going to completely upend your operations. So I filed a lawsuit. I filed a lawsuit in the fall of 2019. RF, uh, excuse me, RCAF was one of my clients. And we had uh, two ranchers out of South Dakota and two ranchers out of Wyoming. So I represented five different entities or people in this lawsuit. And we challenged that RFID mandate. After we filed the lawsuit, USDA withdrew that mandate and said, well, we, okay, we're going to go back to the drawing board. 
over the next several years, they tried a couple of different times to find a way to avoid rulemaking and to try to slip this RFID mandate through the back door. They did it in the summer of 2020 and we caught them and yelled at them and they said, okay, no, 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 we're not doing that. And then they did it again the next spring and they did it the next spring. And there was, from what I could tell and looking at history and look at what's going on around the world, that January 1, 2023 appeared to be a very important date internationally. And what I'm saying about that is this has a lot to do with what the UN wants. This has to do with the hysteria surrounding global warming. And I can explain what I mean about that. So countries that are adopting these RFID mandates, and I'm going to use Ireland as an example. In 2022, Ireland adopted an RFID mandate, similar to what they want to impose here in the United States. As of last July, the, uh, the leaders in Ireland, the, the, the politicians in Ireland came out and said their cattle producers were going to have to slaughter 41,000 head of livestock, not because of a disease outbreak. And keep in mind, RFID is always sold as, well, this is the way we can trace disease. We'll protect the industry because we'll be able to trace that cow instantly, which we can right now anyway. Yeah. But we'll be able to trace that cow instantly. This is all about disease traceability. This is all about the health of the livestock. This is all about the quality of the product. Within one year after adopting an RFID mandate, Ireland had 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 imposed a had adopted a law requiring their livestock producers to kill forty one thousand head slaughter forty one thousand head of cattle, not because of a disease outbreak, but because of global warming. So that's where when you start looking at these dates and you start looking at how the UN and the, the, the World Trade Organization and the, uh, the, the, what we have with the USDA and APHIS here in the United States, and what you see is this is about culling cattle. This is about determining who can raise livestock. This yeah. is about global warming. This is about climate hysteria. This is about control. And so that's part of the reason I continue to fight this. So I have introduced a bill to defund any effort by the USDA to be able to implement an RFID mandate. If people want to use RFID, that's fine. That's a food freedom issue. That's a livestock freedom issue. That's a, that's a, a producer freedom issue. But it shouldn't be mandatory. I do not believe that the USDA has the legal authority to do it. I think it's a bad idea. And you can see from what happened in Ireland, it without an RFID mandate, they don't know how many head of livestock are out there. They can't force you to call. They can't force you to slaughter. It's only with an RFID that they know you've got 459 head or 763 head or 1,025 head and then come in and, and, and force a percentage reduction in your, in your crop. So RFID is the linchpin and the absolute key for them to continue with this climate hysteria nonsense. So let's talk about that because we know, you know, I that's what led me to your office was uh, the climate change hysteria deal in uh, 10, 10 years ago the, under under sustainability. We know that um, uh, climate change is the is the rally cry for tyrants. Uh, it's mm -hmm. it's the crisis that they have to create to take control of production and consumption. And then to make us feel good, we know that they had to create sustainability. That's a good word to use. We we all have to fall into the guise of sustainability. 
with this RFID ESG implementation, we have now seen the carbon, what, what, it's the carbon smart program through the USDA. The USDA is passing out billions and billions of dollars to promote carbon smart ESG um, across American agriculture. We see that ADM got uh, $90 million out of that program. South Dakota State University got 50, 50 million. Um, Farm Journal, Farm Journal gets $40 million to promote. This is state-run media, which only happens in a communist country, representative. What do we do? What do we as producers and consumers and liberty-loving Americans do to fight back and push back on this hysteria? Because you are right. This is all about an anti-meat agenda that comes from the global cabal down through the UN World Economic Forum. Klaus Schwab said in 2023, you will enjoy meat only as a privilege. What do we do to say not here, not in America? So again, we've got to keep, we, we, we have to keep banging this drum and making sure that people understand what the real agenda is here. And yeah. I do that at every single opportunity. And I appreciate the opportunity to come on your podcast and be able to talk to your listeners. I would encourage your listeners to share this podcast with everybody that they can find, including their state leaders. One of the things that we have got to start holding our politicians and our state leaders and even our local leaders we need to hold them accountable for buying into the climate hysteria. So when you buy into this sustainability idea and you buy into this idea of carbon credits and you buy into all of this, what you're saying is as your basic premise, the foundation of your argument is that cattle are bad for the environment. Oil and gas production and use is bad for the environment. Coal development production and use is bad for the environment because of carbon. I don't buy that basic premise. That that is that 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 is those are facts without a basis in evidence. I know what they've done with the models. I understand what they've done with the studies where people have been paid millions upon billions of dollars to come up with this idea that carbon is going to kill us all, but that, that CO2 is going to kill us all, but it's not true. So what one of the things we've got to start pushing back on is we've got to we, we've got to start pushing back on the foundation. Instead of saying, oh, but we do it well, we produce our oil and gas well, we need to say the very basis of your idea that production of oil and gas is bad for society is a false premise. And the reason that I say that, it, there are many examples that I can use, but I use one that's very personal. My mother is 100 years old. She just turned 100 years last, last fall. And she grew up on a dairy farm in Minnesota. You think about how her life has changed in 100 years from getting up at four o'clock in the morning and milking and going to school and spending pretty much every waking moment canning, putting food away for winter, mm. chopping wood. Everything that they did was about keeping warm and keeping food on the table. That's what they spent their entire lives doing. They didn't go on vacation. They didn't hang out on the beach. They didn't have the amenities that we have today. They didn't have the clothing. They didn't have the food resources. They didn't have what we, what we have today. What changed? What has changed in the last 100 years? Commercial production of energy. That's what changed. Oil and gas, coal, being able to commercially produce energy and make it available to the masses. That's what changed. Our life, our life expectancy has exploded in terms of how long we live. The infant mortality rate has dramatically decreased. 
We do not die of things like measles, measles and mumps and rubella and things like that anymore. We are the healthiest, the most prosperous, the most um, spoiled people in the history of the Thank world you. because yes. of access to energy and abundant food. And so what we have right now is we have our political leaders in the UN and the WHO and the and the, the, the Davos crowd and World Economic Forum, they don't like the fact that all of us have been able to live the lives that we do, that we've been able to, to have the kind of prosperity we've had, and they want to take it away from us. Yes. So that's part of the thing is we've got to stop allowing our political leaders, whether they are governors or they are, um, there are our congress members or our senators or whoever they are, Anytime they buy into the idea that CO2 is 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 a is a pollutant or destroying our country or that energy and food production is bad, we need to back them up against the wall and we need to say that premise is an absolute lie. That is a lie and you need to start defending us. You need to be working for us. We are not going to buy in the into the idea that CO2 and cattle production are bad for the environment. So don't talk to me about carbon credits. Don't talk to me about well, I'm going to be paid millions of dollars for my grass or my natural assets or whatever it is. You, when you lie down with dogs, you wake up with fleas. Amen. And these people are covered in fleas. Boy, that is the truth. I, I, You are so smart and you see it. So few people see that agenda from top to bottom. And it's so important that we do and we get get that message out. But and this is a great segue into, into the natural asset companies. You led a charge along with American Stewards of Liberty and um, uh, Marlow Oaks, the treasurer of Utah. You guys led this fantastic charge. Tell us about, uh, well, we're sitting here talking about liberty, and we know that the premise, the very premise of liberty is property rights. Without property rights, we have no other uh, available freedom, in my opinion, in this country. Tell us what you did, what it is, what are natural assets, and, and fill us in on that. Okay, well, I always say if you can't own property, you are property. Mm, it's wow. that important. It is absolutely critical. Again, when you look at our foundation, you look at our constitutional construct and why America has been as prosperous as it has, as successful as it has, and being the world leader that we have been for now going on 100 years, it is because of freedom. It is because of liberty. And it is because of our right to own property and make decisions about our own lives without government interference. So this is what the, the enviros, the radical enviros, the climate change hysteria, hysterics have come up with this idea that they're going to start monetizing and securitizing what they refer to as our natural assets. So that's a natural asset company. Uh, uh, quite a while back, this company called, it's called the Intrinsic Exchange Group Incorporated. It's a private organization, and it's trying to partner with the New York Stock Exchange. And the New York Stock Exchange wants to set up what are called natural asset companies. And these companies would be publicly traded. Their shares would be publicly traded. And what they would own is the federal government would sell to these NACs the natural assets of say Yellowstone National Park or Shoshone National Forest or Black Hills National Forest or Medbow National Forest. And the idea would be that these, that these federal lands, our BLM lands have natural assets such as air and water and wind and trees and grass and animals. And they wanna monetize those natural assets 
sell them to these private companies, and then these private com companies would be able to dictate what kind of activities could take place on those lands. But it specifically states in the rule, under no circumstance would they be able to do any kind of activity that generates revenue. No oil and gas development, no mining, no grazing, no nothing that would affect what is they refer to as the natural assets of these lands. So just to bring it home, Bill Gates could buy the natural assets of Yellowstone National Park. Well, you and I both know Yellowstone National Park is never going to be developed. It's always going to be managed in the pristine condition that it is because that's what the national parks are set aside for. But this is a way of monetizing and securitizing and getting private individuals, radicals who do not need to make money, who are already billionaires, for them to have even more control over our public lands. So, for example, you've got the Rock Springs District of the BLM. It's 3.6 million acres. Let's say Warren Buffett wants to say, well, I don't want to do it. I don't want any more mining over there. I don't want any more oil and gas. I'm going to buy the natural assets of the Rock Springs BLM, uh, District BLM, and we're never going to allow any kind of development anymore over there. Can you imagine what that would do to our communities? But that's what they're trying to do. But here's some other aspects of this. So I was reviewing this again a couple of weeks ago because I submitted some comments. So yes, we fought hard back against this. Guess who gets to determine what the value of these natural assets are? Who gets to set what the market of this is? The UN says yeah. right here, the exchange states that the reporting framework is based on the natural capital accounting standards established in the United Nations system of environmental economic accounting. So the UN would value these properties, these natural assets, and then that's who we would have to rely upon to say, okay, um, you want the Shoshone National Forest, the natural assets, that's going to be worth $3.4 billion. And so Bill Gates says, well, okay, I can pay for that. And we have lost all control over our ability to use those lands for grazing, for mining, for oil and gas development for any kind of use that actually generates revenue for individuals, communities, states, or our nation. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen. They even go on to say that they would require NACs to adopt and publish an environmental and social policy, a biodiversity policy, a human rights policy consistent with the United Nations guiding principles on business and human rights, and an equitable benefit, equitable benefit sharing policy. I mean, this is the craziest stuff in the world. So when we found out about it, they only did a 21-day notice period for this. When we found out about it, my office, we jumped on it immediately, started demanding an extension of the comment period. And then we also were able to get them to extend it. And then last Wednesday, they withdrew the rule entirely because, I mean, we, we got 31 other members of Congress to sign a letter with me. Margaret Blyfield with Stewarts of Liberty was absolutely stellar in all of this. The treasurer of Utah and Senator Ricketts of Nebraska. I, we worked and we uh, to expose it, how incredibly dangerous this is. And one last thing to note on this, natural asset companies could be purchased by foreign governments and foreign individuals. So it specifically states in the rule that they could be sold, but that China could set up natural asset companies and buy our natural assets. Iran could buy. The Chinese Communist Party could invest in these companies. 
and they would be able to dictate whether we could produce energy in this country. Well, and they said, you know, the comments, they had tens of thousands of comments uh, <laughs> against this, which is a fantastic American win. But we know that, that that agenda is not over. Will they come back with something else? I mean, we know they'll come back with something else, but will it look like this, a representative? This is really pretty dangerous. It's ter terribly dangerous. But one of the reasons why this is such a huge win is they've been working on this for a long time. And so <clears throat> it was it was quite a seismic shift to have them withdraw this. Do I anticipate they'll come back with something else? I do. That's why everybody has to be incredibly vigilant and watch. This came through the SEC. Who pays attention to rulemaking in the SEC? Exactly. None of us do. We'll right. look at USDA. We look at APHIS. We look at some of those. It never occurred to me that I had the SEC working against uh, all the citizens of this country to sell us out to foreign governments. One last thing on these NACs, it would also apply to private lands that are covered by conservation easements. Mm -hmm. So anyone who has entered into a conservation easement, their land could potentially be subject to being controlled by a natural asset company through this regulation. And I don't think any of those landowners were ever aware of something that radical could happen. So that's something else. This applies, they specifically state that it would, that the NACs uh, would be expected to license these rights from sovereign nations or private landowners. It also says that they're looking at doing this on huge swaths of farm ground. Well, farm ground in the United States is all privately owned. Yeah. Our federal lands, BLM and national forests, that's grazing land. That's development land for mining and oil and gas, and that sort of thing. But we don't have farm ground in our national forests and BLM. The vast majority of our farm ground is privately owned, and they specifically call out they want this to cover farm ground. So my heart is a little bit hurt over all of this sustainability model being implemented. And we have, you know, hundreds of organizations across the United States, and I'm talking to ag organizations that are adopting these these policies that come straight from, from the United Nations World Economic Forum. And, and there is another cattlemen's organization uh, and they are fixing to have um, the, uh, one of their main speakers is an individual from Oxford University that has actually been taxed with helping the World Economic Forum figure the monetary value of our natural asset companies. So I, I, I struggle with the thought that American producers are voting on policy in their ag organizations that are supporting supporting this sustainability model. And I, I keep screaming at the top of my lungs, stop, you don't know what you're doing. If you don't know what you're voting on, don't stop doing that because you're giving our, our productive rights, our consumptive rights away uh, through your property rights, through, oh, through all of this adoption of the sustainability model, which we know that sustainability is nothing but uh, production and consumption control. It is communism. I'm screaming that as loud as I can, Representative. Uh, so we go so we go from here and we have to say, all right, settle down, Shad. We got to figure something out to educate these people. And I appreciate what you guys, along with the American Stewards of Liberty, all of you did such an amazing job on that. And that really does, when you said that was a huge shift, that may have been the largest shift in terms of property rights across the nation that we've seen in a long time. Because we have these property attacks coming from the APR in Montana, the National Heritage Areas, you know, being 
influenced everywhere. The conservation easements, I keep yelling at people saying, hey, you can conserve your land without taking money from an outside entity. Stop doing that. You know, and of course, they all think I'm crazy. And I guess I, I am a little bit. But I love our country. No, you're right. Because here's what I would say is that the entire premise of global warming and climate change assumes facts, not at evidence. And what I mean by that is they have now glossed over the idea of whether climate, of whether climate change, CO2, global warming, all of these things are interconnected, whether it has anything to do with livestock production, oil and gas, energy use, whatever. They have, they have taken, they've leaped over the foundational uh, analysis and scientific basis for this argument, and all they've ever relied upon are models. They don't rely on real data. When they rely on real data, when they rely on satellite data, when they rely on the data associated with weather stations that have not been compromised by airports and urban sprawl and those kinds of things, there has been no change in, in temperatures. What you see are the natural fluctuations throughout history. So they're assuming facts, not in evidence, and then they're just immediately leaping to the fact of we're destroying our environment. The fact is that is absolutely untrue. And when you buy into this sustainability and when you buy and you take these tax credits or you take this money or you you sell your natural assets to some third party so that they can drill a well. What you've done is you've bought into the basic premise and the basic premise is what is going to destroy our country. So that's what we've got to get back to it. We've got to be exposing the fact that what they are attempting to do is engineered scarcity. We need yes. to call it out for what it is. They yeah. want to limit our food production. So they will they will buy, buy uh, a byproduct of that is they will limit our food consumption. They want to limit our ability to produce energy, which means we will be using less of it. So what they're doing is this is engineered government-imposed wretchedness. It is engineered government-imposed scarcity based upon a lie. And we, as our, our, our livestock industry, our mineral industry, our energy producers, our, our leaders, our community leaders, our state leaders, our governors, our senators, our representatives, We've got to start calling this out for what it is, which is it is a lie. They have been cooking the books. And whenever you cook the books, I will beat you in court every single time. When you have to lie as the foundation for your argument, you cannot support what you're doing. And that's where we are. We have to expose it. We have to be willing to take the retribution and have everybody call us deniers and all this other nonsense. But I am no longer going to buy into the idea that our cattle producers, our bison producers, our pork producers, our oil and gas producers are making life worse. They are making life better. You are an amazing person. I want to, one more thing on the natural asset companies. Uh, when you said this was in the, in the books for a long, long time, in January of 23, uh, 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 President Biden, in partnership with Vice President Kamala Harris, um, implemented the Landstat partnership, which is was between the U.S. Geological Survey and NASA. And what it was was a data, uh, data. Uh, uh, let me let me. It's an RFID system for every inch of land in America, right? And that's what was going to quantify this natural asset companies. What happens to that program now? Will it stay there? I mean, it seems like that may have been the, one of the foundational pushes of the natural asset company because they have to have a, a data uh, a collection project. Well, and that's what continue, it was. No, they'll continue collecting the data. I, I We really do have to be vigilant because we won this round 
but they're eventually going to go for the knockout. And their mm -hmm. knockout, as I said, is engineer, engineered scarcity. Okay. Um, we've been fighting this battle since the 1970s, and all it is is warmed over Marxism. It's the idea that a centralized government should be able to dictate to people what they can and cannot do. That's contrary to our constitution. It's contrary to our form of government. So for, you know, since the beginning of time, really, you've got people who have always wanted to have the central planners in charge. And it started, uh, it really started during the the, the New Deal uh, with Ruth Roosevelt. I'd say in the last 30 to 40 years, the expansion of the administrative state has gone at a pace that none of us ever thought was was possible. I knew it was because I've been monitoring it pretty much every day, both as a private attorney, a private citizen, and now in Congress. So we have to continue to be vigilant, but that's why I say that January 1, 2023 date for getting RFID in place was actually a very important date for them. They missed that because RCAF and, and uh, uh, these other folks, Kenny Fox and, and, and Tracy Hunt and their families and, and RCAF, you guys were willing to be my clients and fight that lawsuit. We were able to push them back. So we, we threw a wrench in their plans right there. Uh, we continue to throw a wrench in their plans by, by challenging these, these natural asset companies, but we need to be vigilant. But what I want you to do is for those people who are going down this pathway of taking federal and government and, and money for their natural assets, they're going to wake up one morning and they're not going to own very much and they're going to say, what happened? Yeah. You can't, I'm going to say it again, you lie down with dogs, you wake up with fleas. And these people are mongrels. They want to take away your rights. They want to take away your ability to own private property. They want to take away your ability to produce food on the mass scale that we can do right now. This is government imposed wretchedness and we've got to push back. It is not the responsibility of our government, especially in this country, to intentionally to adopt policies that are intended to increase the cost of food, housing and energy. Yet that's where this entire global warming scam goes. It will increase the cost of absolutely everything we need to have a prosperous life. And so it's basically just a massive uh, transfer of wealth, uh, not to mention from just the, from, the, from the poorest among us to the to, to the wealthiest. It's interesting you say that we had a hearing two weeks ago in the Natural Resource Committee or last week in the Natural Resource Committee. And I have introduced a bill called the Energy Poverty Prevention and Accountability Act. And that is to force these agencies to actually disclose the real cost of their policies in terms of energy and on our low income communities and that sort of thing. And one of the things that I read, and you can go to our YouTube channel and you can watch that hearing. But one of the things I did is I put a bunch of statistics in the record showing how all of this is a transfer of wealth from lower and middle income America to the wealthiest among us, the Bill Gates of the world. The, 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 the folks, the Chinese Communist Party that are purchasing land. This is a massive wealth transfer, but it's not from the rich to the poor. It's from the poor to the rich. And that's what this is all about. Wow. That is incredibly powerful. I know that one last one last little tidbit for me. A couple of days ago, I did see uh, a little news snippet on RFID in the cattle. And now they're saying, and I'll have to go back and find that, but now they're saying, uh, you know, by 2026, January 1, every animal is going to have the RFID tag for interstate travel. And uh, uh, we need to look into that because that was just a, a quiet little snippet that I happened to run across. And I'm like, I got a little confused. But, you know, personally, uh, I, I, 
I attach this to a lot of people. The representative Hagman, you are truly an American hero. <laughs> and I love you so much. And you. you know, your your win put such an uplift in the American people, whether you were a, a Democrat or a Republican, your win was for the Constitution of the United States and defending liberty and freedom. And that gave us such an uplift that there is hope among our leaders around there, out there. Uh, I just want to thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for being such a, a partner with us at RCAF USA. And, and most of all, thank you for being a constitutionally defending American, liberty-loving liberty American uh, uh, citizen, cattle rancher, everything. You are everything. You're the real <laughs> deal. And I really do appreciate it. Well, you you are so kind, and it's wonderful to hear words because sometimes you kind of get a bit beat up on some of these things. I know but you, you have to you have to yeah. stay strong. And I've got a great family. I've got a great husband. I've got a, 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 a and a family that's incredibly supportive and and friends uh, throughout the country. And and it makes a difference. It makes a huge difference. And our calf has always been a, a solid partner with the work that I've done. You guys do great work. Let's continue down that road. Let's stay in touch. And thank you for this opportunity. Well, thank you so much. So, I want to shift back for just a second. So, you know, we've talked about RFID. We've talked about the globalism. We've talked about the climate change initiative. And we're seeing, you know, there's people that, oh, that's not going to happen in America. That's not going to happen in our country. But as we see these other countries around the world, Ireland, you mentioned, Netherlands, you know, right mm -hmm. now in Germany, Germany, you know, I think I saw France is now protesting too. So all these farmers around the world are dealing with the issues that we are currently fighting against. And it's kind of just that testing ground of, you know, Europe is the testing ground, it seems like. So, you know, it's inspiring to see the videos on social media because, you know, mainstream media is not covering it. But um, like, it's inspiring just to see these thousands and thousands of farmers gathering to fight against this you know, globalist climate change initiative. So this is coming to America. You know, we've kind of talked about how to stop it, but how do we incite this fighting spirit that I think we have deep down, but it's just kind of like, it's kind of gotten lost, I feel like a little bit. You know, in some ways our prosperity has been very damaging um, because, and, and I guess I shouldn't say it that way. What I should say is that for the last 40 years, especially as this long march through our institutions, has taken place. We have been busy raising our children, taking care of our grandchildren, working in our communities, building our businesses, being on the school board, being in your state legislature, being a county commissioner, going to your kids' football games. Then what we did is we allowed the Marxists to continue to move through our, our universities and our businesses and create this idea of ESG and DEI and all of this other nonsense. And we didn't push back. And I'll tell you a story that my father used to, that, uh, well, when I was growing up, we would go down and irrigate on the farm on the North Platte River. We were never allowed to swap mosquitoes. And when you're around water in the summertime, obviously there's a lot of mosquitoes. But my dad always said, you, you, you can't spend all your time swatting mosquitoes because you're never going to get the job done. So we weren't allowed to swap mosquitoes. We just had to go get the job done. And I kind of feel that during the 70s and 80s, it, those environmental organizations and groups were those mosquitoes, and we weren't swatting them when we needed to. And we weren't exposing their lies and the, and the, and the, and the falsity and fallacy of the foundation of their premise. We were just going about doing our business. 
And all of a sudden we wake up and it's like, wait a minute, what in the world happened here? How, how did the, why, what is DEI? Why are you doing this? That was, what in, how in the world, where did this come from? And now we're playing catch up. And so I do think that there are a lot more people who are awake today than even 15 years ago as to the threat associated with these policies and ideas and ideals. So you're seeing a lot more people push back. I would also say that what Joe Biden has done with that open border and the crisis and catastrophe that he has created in this country has woken people up in a way that they haven't been for a long, long time. So I'm going to say I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic because people are talking about these issues. You know, you think about it. I'm in Congress. I'm in Washington, D.C. I got a lot of people to support me on this RFID mandate. Now, I didn't get it passed because there were some of our ag organizations that fought against me on that, but I'm not done. I'm going to bring it back. I had over 100 votes on that that voted in favor of me, in favor of us on this issue. We're educating people. We're getting them to understand how these dots are connected and why they mean something both in an urban area as well as a rural area. So that's what we've got to do. It's a matter of education. It's a matter of bringing these coalitions together so that with you, if you live in downtown Atlanta, you're as concerned about this as, as, as if you live near North Platte, Nebraska. Amen. We have got to build these coalitions, bring these people in so that they understand the health and welfare of their citizens are at stake when you allow the UN or the WHO or the WTO or, or, or Joe Biden to dictate what kind of food we can eat. Exactly. And I think, um, you know, a dis it's been a disconnect on, you know, the natural asset companies, you know, Shad and I just recorded an episode with um, a Colorado rancher last week talking about the Colorado wolf reintroduction. And she talked about it too, of this disconnect between rural America and the rest of the world of, they think it's not, it doesn't matter. You know, they do, you know, they go raise their cattle, they go do whatever. And the food just appears in the grocery store to these consumers. And I think, um, another great um or not great but you know it's been an awakening for a lot of ranchers also this you know time we're in because a lot of ranchers like you said they kept their head down they're working and all of a sudden we wake up and this is the problem we have and the last really topic I want to hit with you is the sheep industry and the sheep industry is a perfect example of that you know they were just keeping their heads down you know, how I was raised is you keep your head down, you work hard and, you know, everything will work out good. And the society we live in now suddenly is not that case. So with the sheep industry, you and Congressman Blake Moore from Utah were instrumental in circulating a bipartisan house letter to trade ambassador Ty, urging her to support the petition that um, RCAF filed on behalf of the U.S. sheep industry to determine if imports are a major cause of the decline of the full-time sheep producers and the size of the U.S. sheep flock, which if you've seen those numbers to our listeners, they're astonishing. The amount of sheep producers and sheep we have lost in the last 40 years. Um, so do you think that the trade ambassador will call for the investigation that we have asked for? I hope so. And we'll just, we'll, we'll stay on that. We'll continue to follow up to see if, if that's something that we can get done. You know, I grew up with sheep ranching. My my parents started as sheep ranchers. When I was 10, they sold their, their sheep and we went solely to cattle. But I was I was raised in that industry and still have a lot of family members who are sheep ranchers in Wyoming. 
it's an industry that it's extremely important that we protect, not only for the food, but the fiber as well. And uh, it is, again, one of our ag industries. When, when you come from the West and you see that one of the highest and best uses of so much of our land out here is grazing, whether it's cattle grazing or sheep grazing, it's the only way that we can generate revenue on, on so many of those lands. So it's imperative that we protect our sheep industry so that we can continue to generate revenue for not only our farmers and ranchers, but our communities and our states. So it is something that we will stay on and I'll continue working with my fellow representative out of Utah and we'll we'll follow up on that particular issue. Yes, and we appreciate appreciate y'all's work on that. And a lot of what our petition calls for is tariff rate quotas. And there appears to be a growing interest in the use of tariffs as a legitimate economic tool to preserve vital industries like steel, peanuts, sugar. I saw recently the shrimp industry has all but succumbed to import pressure and is now seeking relief through tariffs. Um, so we're it's not uncommon what we're asking for in the sheep industry. So do you think that Congress is ready to provide tariff relief to these industries, specifically the sheep industry? I don't know that I can answer that right now. It's something that we've got to start talking to them, to, to other people about. Uh, there are some people who are adamantly opposed to tariffs because they argue that that's just a tax. But as you say, it can also be a protective mechanism to make sure that we are protecting those vital industries, especially in the food space. Um, in shrimp, go 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 to your grocery store, look at the back of the bags of the frozen shrimp, see if you can find American-produced shrimp. The vast majority of it comes from Vietnam, Thailand, countries like that. And it's it, I personally don't think it's as good. I like the American-produced shrimp, but it's awfully hard to find. So yes, these are industries that we need to protect, and other countries do it. Other countries do that. So I think it's absolutely worth having that discussion and looking at it at a, in, in a broader way. A lot of people will say, well, we don't have shrimp or excuse me, we don't have sheep in our in, in my district, so I'm not going to worry about that. But as you say, this is a, a food issue. This is a food supply and food chain issue. So we need to look at it holistically, not just as one particular industry, but how other industries are affected as well. Exactly. What is it that Bill says? The sheep are the canary in the coal mine? Is that canary what he says? Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, well, Shad, you ready to close this out? What else do we have? Any final comments? You know, the only thing I know to say uh, to Representative Hagman, and I always say this, and but, you know, beef and liberty, where there is beef, there is freedom. And as long as we can keep beef on this land, we will have freedom in this country. So thank you so I much. I like that. Me. Hey, Shad, is it okay if I use that? Yeah, absolutely. Beef and, uh, I, I always say, uh, uh Beef and liberty, uh, where there is beef, there is freedom. And I'll tell you where I got that. There was a man named Theodosius Soros, and he wrote a, a song. Back in the 17th century, the, um, the English were very worried that the French were going to invade England. But the French were not beef eaters. England were beef eaters, and they were a stronger country. And Theodosius Soros wrote this song about uh, where beef, where beef is denied, uh, we, uh, it weakens a country. And that's where, that's where I got the premise of that, where there is beef, there is freedom. So, you know, I think what we need to do really is that needs to be the premise of most of what we go forward with. I think that our calf and other organizations need to start using that as their mantra. 
Well, I have been using it for my mantra for a couple of years now. And uh, uh, I, I was lucky enough to get, I was on Glenn Beck this week and in his podcast and uh, they, they probably take that out, but I did say that in there. Good for you. Yeah. So. Well, thank you for the opportunity to visit with you today. I'm going over to meet with the Wyoming wool growers. Thank you so much and good luck today, but really from the bottom of my heart, uh, thank Reverend you. Hagman, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. So we have one last question. We always ask all of our podcast guests, what is your favorite cut of beef and how do you like it prepared? Ribeye medium well. Oh, actually though, I do a salt crusted ribeye where I use about 18 to 20 pounds of salt and, I, and I'll do a, a ribeye roast and yes. create almost like a, a uh, like a clay pot. And you put the salt all over it, you cover it with uh, herbs de Provence, a little vodka to make it so that it will suck that flavor, bore into the beef to kind of break oh. that down. And then <laughs> you, you cover it with about 20 pounds of salt, put it in the oven, cook it, and then it, it immediately hardens and it creates a clay pot and it just sits in there and cooks. And then when you bring it out, you take a hammer and break the, clay, the, the salt and you got this incredible ribeye roast right there. It's just fantastic. That sounds incredible. <laughs> for you sometime. Yes, I would love that. We are so thankful to the Congresswoman for taking the time to talk with us. And we are so thankful she is such a defender of our industry and our country. We are also so thankful that you took the time to tune in today. We have to stand up against these unnecessary mandates and defend our freedom. And it's going to take all of us. Now more than ever, it is so important to pay attention and stay updated and engaged in the conversations surrounding our cattle and sheep industries. Be sure to give us a follow at RCAFUSA on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. RCAFUSA is set apart from all other national cattle associations because we rely solely on membership dues and donations to carry out our mission to ensure the continued profitability and independence of United States cattle and sheep producers. We exist only because of the support from our members, and we ask you to become a member today. To do that, go to r-capusa.com. Thanks so much for tuning in today. We'll see you next time on the RCAP USA Roundup.